Well, I am really excited this morning because I get to walk with you through Psalm 22, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is the song of Jesus. Um, there's a reason this painting is up here, which you will hear about later. Um, it's also one of the most common types of psalms. You know, we have 150 psalms in our Bible and 64 of them are laments. And that's what Psalm 22 is. It is a lament in which the psalmist himself, sometimes in the laments, the whole community of God's people cry out to him in a time of distress and trouble, in times of sorrow and deep disappointment. They ask God the hard questions. Why, God, is this happening? How long, O oh Lord, will this last? Laments were written for dark nights of the soul. When our world turns upside down, we don't know what's going on, we feel overwhelmed and undone, and there's no relief in sight. And my guess is we have all been there at one point or another, or we will be. It happens with long bouts of chronic illness or chronic pain, either our own or someone we care for. It happens when that dark cloud of depression just won't lift, or when grief rolls in again like a wave that threatens to take you under. It happens when broken relationships won't heal, when addictions don't go away. It happens when financial burdens keep you awake at night and you, you don't see how you're gonna get out. And it happens when our hopes and dreams are dashed to the ground. Those are the times we feel the most helpless and alone. And those are the times we are most desperate for God to show up and do something about our pain and our suffering. And yet often he feels so far away. And we want to pray, but we just don't know how. Because frankly, if we're honest, we're not quite sure God is listening. How do we pray in such times? Can anyone teach us how to pray? in such times. David Jeremiah in his book, When Your World Falls Apart, says this, there is no textbook for genuine prayer. There is no professor who can teach it, no pastor who can make it happen for you. True prayer is spontaneous outpouring of honesty and need from your soul's foundation. In calm times, we say a prayer. In desperate times, we truly pray. And that's exactly what David, the psalmist, models for us in Psalm 22. If you want to go ahead and turn there or scroll there. In this psalm, David models prayer for desperate times, and he knew plenty of them. Ironically, though, we don't know the particular occasion for Psalm 22. It's not in the superscript above the psalm, and we can't find any specific incident in the Hebrew scriptures of a time when David was actually experiencing what this psalm is describing. In fact, one commentator, Warren Wiersbe, observed that what David seems to be experiencing in Psalm 22 is not that of a sick man in a bed, or a soldier in battle, it's the description of a criminal being executed. Indeed, it was the first words of Psalm 22 that the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, took as his own as he was hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
There are many other quotations from Psalm 22 in the Gospels and in the book of Hebrews that indicate to us that this is not just a psalm of lament. It's also what we would call a messianic psalm. That is to say, David is prophetically writing about Jesus, the Messiah, who will suffer and die, who has sung these laments ahead of us and teaches us how to lament. And so we're going to look at Psalm 22 from the perspective of both David and Jesus, who will model for us the three most basic elements of a biblical lament, each of which I'm going to start with the letter P to make it easier to remember. And I, I want us to remember because I think we need to learn this morning how to lament in our times of need. And so first of all, there is the element of pain. In verses 1 to 21, we're going to hear the psalmist cry out to God, complain to God about how he feels God and other people are treating him and how he feels about that. And then the second element is the plea where the psalmist cries out for God to help and, and the reasons why God should help. That's all in kind of the first half of the psalm. And then in verses 22 to 31, there's a complete change of tone as David shifts to praise. He includes statements of trust and confidence that God has heard his request and will answer. And we're going to get a sense of the real back and forth that happens as, as David struggles to move from pain to praise, from sorrow to celebration. It was no short path. It was long and it was hard. But David and Jesus show us how to turn to God in our pain and find that God will eventually turn our pain into praise. So let's get started. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So right out of the gate, Jesus and David show us what it looks like to turn to God in our pain. And it looks like completely being honest with God. They give us permission to take our hard questions and our raw emotions to God, to honestly express how we feel, how we perceive God is treating us, and why that's not okay. You know, they didn't keep a stiff, stiff upper lip. They didn't pretend they didn't hurt or pretend that they weren't angry at God or pretend that they weren't afraid of the future. They let it all out, and not just once. David cried out over and over again, Lord, day after day and night after night I cry out to you, but you are silent. I feel abandoned. God, where are you? Why aren't you answering me? Why are you treating me this way? You can almost hear David groaning as he wrote those words. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus whispered those words from the cross. No, it doesn't. That's not how Matthew remembered it. Matthew said Jesus was loudly shouting those words at God. Is that okay? Can we do that? Is it okay to shout at God in our pain? 
Is it disrespectful if we do it? I don't know about you, but I wasn't allowed to yell in my house growing up, much less at my parents. I would have been in deep trouble. And you know, as I grew up, as I grew up in the faith, somehow I got the impression that it wasn't even spiritual to feel, much less to express outrage or anger or disappointment to God. And so I, sometimes I would even feel guilty just, just feeling those emotions. And so I've never known quite how to handle my negative emotions. And so I learned to just kind of stuff it inside. Well, my Old Testament professor at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Brian Webster, was teaching our class about laments one day at a time in his own life where he was going through something really, really hard. So I pulled out my notes this week because I wanted to share a few thoughts with you from that. He taught us, he said, you know, there are several different strategies that we could adopt in dealing with our pain and our suffering. He says, you know, the first way, the way a lot of us handle it is we try to ignore our pain. You know, we, we stuff it down inside. We... Um, try to cover it up, we put on a brave face. But that doesn't really make it go away, does it? The second strategy that sometimes people use is they shake their fist at God in defiant anger. But you know, when we do that, we cut off the very source of our help in those times. The third strategy, Dr. Webster says, well, you can grumble and whine and complain Essentially, turning away from God and looking to other people and other things to help alleviate the pain. And he pointed out that's what the children of Israel did in the wilderness. Remember over and over again when they got into a, a tight spot? Instead of keeping their focus on God who was in front of them and the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, they turned away. They looked back toward Egypt they said, we want to go back to Egypt, back to our old life, back to our old gods. This God isn't coming through for us. I know, let's make a golden calf. That will help our situation. But it didn't, did it? And God didn't take kindly to that sort of strategy. You can ignore your pain. You can shake your fist at God. You can turn away to something else or someone else to alleviate your pain besides God, or, Dr. Webster says, you can learn to lament. And then he gave the best definition of lament I have ever heard. He said, you can face God as you weep with hands open, knowing that he will answer eventually. It is still faith, he says, because our laments arise out of this disorientation that we feel when our life experiences contradict, seem to contradict what God has promised to us. And what has God promised to us? Do you remember from last week, from Psalm 1? He's promised us a, a blessed life, an abundant life for those who would follow him. The blessed life is knowing God as Sissy taught us last week. It is walking through this life with God in deep and intimate fellowship. And so it is in the process 
of facing God in our pain with hands open that we reorient ourselves to him and we learn how to deal with the pain in this life. In other words, the main difference between legitimate lament and constant complaint and whining and griping is the position of your heart and your hands. Is your heart turned toward God for help? Are your hands open, ready, and waiting to receive his reply? Or are you bent on shutting down that process and turning away from God instead of toward him? Jesus and David turned to God in their pain, not away from him. And part of what made their feelings of abandonment so painful and so confusing was the nature of their relationship with him, right? And and that's what we feel too. And so that's what they focus on in verses 3 to 5, which says, after this complaint of feeling abandonment, they say, you are holy, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. In other words, David is recalling God's character of holiness and his actions of faithfulness on behalf of his covenant people over and over again in Israel's history. And David is saying, I'm one of your people too. But you're not showing up for me now as you always did for them then. They were not disgraced, but I feel disgraced. I feel shamed. And not only that, Lord, but because you're not showing up for me now, my enemies feel free to treat me like dirt and mock my faith. This is how he put it in verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you hear the mockers at the foot of the cross? Have you ever been mocked for your faith? Does the enemy ever whisper in your ear in hard times? A lot of good it does you to trust in God. He didn't prevent this from happening. He is not providing for you now. God must not really exist. Or if he does, he's not really good. Or he doesn't love you. Or maybe your faith isn't strong enough. Or maybe you're just not worthy for his intervention. You're just a worm. See, when our pain goes on and on, that inner voice gets louder and louder, doesn't it? And it messes with our minds and it affects the way we view ourselves and our identity. And so what I love about what David does next is he, he turns back to God and he appeals to God to help him, not on the basis of his relationship as a member of God's covenant community, but on the basis of his personal relationship with God. This is what he says in verses 9 to 11. Yet you, God, you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near 
and no one else can help me. You may not have known God since your birth, but he has known you. And in the beautiful poetic language of this psalm, he's saying, God created you, and he was the midwife at your birth. You go way back with him, and when you think back over your life, you will realize that God has been with you every step of the way, right up to this present moment. Have you thought about how you wound up here anyway, today, right here in this place, in the community of God's people, knowing God, loving him, seeking to know and to love him better, answer lots of little steps and moments along the way. Maybe you can remember that moment in time when you personally put your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sin and to make you a child of God. Maybe you don't exactly remember that moment, but right now you know that you are a daughter of God because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He may feel very far away from you right now because your trouble is so near, but Jesus is reminding us Turn to God in your pain. He has been with you all your life, and he will not leave you now. He most certainly has not forsaken you. He will help you. Jesus can say that, and we can believe it because of what happens next in this psalm. Because it mirrors what happened to Jesus. The next seven verses essentially describe in gruesome detail the crucifixion of Jesus by a band of men so evil that he compares them to animals, dogs, roaring lions, wild bulls. We won't take the time this morning to reread these verses, but it is clear that Jesus' suffering is not only excruciating, but it is horrifically unjust. Jesus was innocent suffering for no crime of his own, but for the sins and crimes of all humankind, yours and mine, that were laid upon his body. The apostle Peter, quoting the prophet Isaiah, wrote these words, he bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. He's not talking about physical wounds. He was talking about the mortal wound in our souls that is caused by our sin. And Jesus became our sin and took the punishment that our sins deserved, which is death. And you know that death is not just the physical separation of soul from body. There is a spiritual death, a separation of our souls from God. Sin separates sinners from God. Our sin that was laid on Jesus' body separated Jesus from God on our behalf. And I cannot begin to understand, much less explain to you, how the unity of the Trinity was broken in those hours that Jesus hung on the cross. But I know that Jesus felt it. He understood that he was utterly forsaken by God. 
He knew it. He felt it. That yawning cavern of emptiness and darkness in his soul. You know, it is one thing for us to feel forsaken by God. It is another thing and altogether life-altering for us to realize that Jesus not only knows exactly how we feel, but that he understands by experience what it means to be forsaken by God. To have the Father turn away from you because your sins are so repulsive to his holiness. It was an excruciating price for the Father and the Son to pay. And yet somehow... God's love is so great for us, we cannot even understand it. So great that God did not want to be separated from us for one moment of our lives. And so he sent his only son. And Jesus willingly came, willingly took on our humanity, suffered in our place, and died. And because he was forsaken, we never will be. Jesus himself said it, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. You know, the Gospels record for us that while Jesus was dying on the cross alone and forsaken, there came a moment when he realized that God had heard his prayer and had accepted his offering on our behalf. It was in that moment that he said, it is finished. It is accomplished. What I came to do, I have done. I have healed the great wound of their sin. And now they can live in intimate fellowship with me and with the Father all the days of their lives and right on into eternity. I believe we see that moment in Psalm 22, verse 21, where we get a head-snapping change of tone in this psalm. But let's start back with verse 19, with Jesus' final plea for help so that we get the full impact of God's answer. Jesus speaking, if not thinking, these words from the cross, but you, O Lord, do not remain far away. You are my source of strength. Hurry and help me. Deliver me from the sword. Save my life from the claws of the wild dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. In other words, I'm dying here, God. Do something. And then there is the most abrupt change, a a change in the verb tense in the original Hebrew language that the Net Bible and the ESV, I believe, most accurately translates where Jesus moves from this long litany of commands, save me, help me, rescue me, deliver me, into a statement of settled fact. And here it is in verse 21. You have answered me. Finally, after all of his cries and pleas, he knew that God had heard and had answered his prayers, and he shifted immediately into praise. I will declare your name to my countrymen. In the middle of the assembly, I will praise you. You see, this is what happens with lament. When you face God as you weep with your hands open, he answers you. It may not happen in your timing. His answers may not be what you expect, but they will always lead you to praise. Jesus knew how to lament, and he did it often. 
Hebrews 5, 7 says that during his earthly life, Christ offered both requests and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devotion. Wait, God heard Jesus and saved him from death? Yes, but, but Jesus actually died. Yes, he did but he rose again from death. His death was just the doorway to new life for him and for us. From a human point of view, Jesus' death was untimely and tragic and God's answer to his plea was unexpected and unimaginable. But oh, it was the right best answer. The rest of Psalm 22 essentially is resurrection language encompassing all that will be accomplished through Jesus' life and death and resurrection and his future return. There is imagery of a great banquet where all of those who followed God in this life, the poor and the rich, the sick and the healthy, the young and the old, will feast together at God's table. And there will be a time when all nations will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Let's quickly move through the last few verses. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Skip down to verse 30. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Jesus embraced his pain and he turned to God in it because he knew that God would turn his pain into praise and not just for him, but for us all. That's what God does. That's what he always does. And that is what we need to declare to one another today because God does not ignore our cries of pain. He hears, he responds, he saves. Turn to God in your pain and he will eventually turn your pain into praise. And when he does, it is appropriate to praise him in the community of believers. Dr. Webster says in his book on the Psalms, we need to hear the call of others to praise and be part of a community. When we lament, we benefit from hearing the voices of others speak the words of the Psalms. We need to pray. And so now I'd like to introduce you to my sweet friend, Laura. Laura's Whalen. Laura joined my small group Bible study last fall. She's been such a blessing to us. And she has a story of lament to share with you for your encouragement. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Alice. It's an honor to stand before you and share about my pain. So I arrived here almost a year. It was a year in March from Colorado. Lived in Colorado for 12 years. All our four sons were there, all newly married. And I was active in women's Bible study. I was a Bible study coordinator. And my husband received a job transfer here. And so we took it. And so instead of them leaving cleaving, we left our sons. And we're cleaving here, the two of us. But it was very painful. It was very painful to be uprooted and leave everything that we knew there. That was our community for over a decade, in 12, 13 years. And come here 
to me, this was like a wilderness here. And the Lord reminded me before I came in Isaiah 43, 18, 19. He gave me this scripture before I even arrived. He said, I will make a way in the wilderness. I will make the rivers in the desert that will spring up. He's like, forget the former things. I'm going to do something new. And I tell you, when I arrived here the first month or so, I didn't know a single person. And in the community that we moved into after I put my house together and was running out of things to do to fill my time, I constantly cried. I was crying. I was grieving my soul, my heart, missing community, missing my sons, our family that we did everything together with. Every weekend we had dinners together. I rock climbed with them. We hiked together. We did all sorts of things. I did it with the ladies too in our Bible study. But I didn't have any of it. I was uprooted. I felt displaced here. And it was very painful. I felt so alone. And I did have the Lord. I knew about the Lord. I have the Lord. I had a relationship. And I would cry out to him. And in my neighborhood, no one would talk to me. And I come to find out, primarily my neighborhood are Hindu Indians. And I have a really large black border collie Pyrenees mix, 90 pounds all together. It looks like a wolf. And I would wave at my neighbors and literally they would run away from me. They wouldn't come near me. Nobody would talk to me. You're talking a whole month of this. My kids would call, their sons and daughters would call every once a week or every other week. But it's not the same. Not to have someone, of course, my husband would be bombarded when he walked in at times, to talk to, to have community with. And then one day after a month, as I was crying out to the Lord, just crying, my heart, I'm so alone. I was so alone. I felt so desperately alone, forsaken in a sense. The Lord appeared to me. He appeared, Jesus, he was there all along. But in my tears and my pain, I couldn't see him, that he was there. In my suffering, my pain, all I could see was that I was upset, I was angry. Why was I here? Because my husband said, no, don't get a job, don't work. I want you to have a flexible schedule so we can travel together. I'm going to be going to all these different states in Denver all the time. So I didn't get a job right away. And so the Lord said, he appeared to me. And he kissed my face and he hugged me and he held me. I saw Jesus before me. And he called me to start painting. I used to paint. I was a former educator, but I taught elementary school. And he's like, no, I want you to paint. I started painting. And then all of a sudden, I met Mary Sue, and she goes to this church here. She came to me when I was walking my dogs. She approached me with a smile, and she petted my dogs. She wasn't even afraid of them. And they have a little white Maltese that all the Indian kids now think is the baby of Ruger, but it's not relatable. And she encouraged me. She wasn't afraid of them. And she told me about IBC and we had visited a couple times and she's like, keep going there. I've been there for 20 some years. It's a wonderful church. Get plugged into, you know, the Bible studies coming up in the fall. And I did, I did get plugged into the Bible study and I got to know these beautiful ladies in the small group and they prayed me through this time of loneliness. And also I told them about my neighbors. I was like, these Indians here don't know the Lord and I see them everywhere. And God slowly made a bridge. One of them asked me to teach them how to paint. They heard that I've been painting. And so I brought her into my house. She overcame her fear with the dogs. Then she brought another friend. And I've been teaching a handful of Indian ladies. And then the Lord one day in November, 
They asked me, they wanted to paint their God, Ganesha, the elephant God. And I had been telling them, I have, you know, God is the creator. He's the artist. And they kept thinking I was referring to a God, you know, a God. And then that day in November, when they asked to paint Ganesha, their God, their elephant God, God said, paint me, Jesus Christ, the all-powerful God of the universe who created everything, who protects you. And who is right here stepping every moment of the day to be with you. He's right here who forgives our sins. And this is what he had me paint. He had me paint this painting. And he had me share Jesus Christ with them. I got to share the whole message. That he's this almighty, powerful God. But ever so accessible. Ever so present. Right here every moment of the day with me. And they were in awe of it. And then... I heard about Rejoice, and the ladies asked me, because they heard I paint, to paint the windows of the church. Many of you saw the holly that was painted on the glass windows. God called me to paint those, and my Indian friends wanted to go see it. They were like, we want to go see these paintings. And so they came to Rejoice, and I wasn't going to invite them, but the director's like, no, two days before, she's, she's like, Laura, the program, because I'm working the event. I was helping out with my dear sister Wednesday, and I met the most beautiful women there too, and got connected and serving Rejoice Wednesday. And the Lord said, no, he stirred my heart, and Martha bought the table, and she gave me two tickets. And she's like, here's the provision. And I gave them the tickets. I brought, picked them up that don't drive. I brought them over. They had never been in a church before. They were so loved. They met Sissy. Pastor Barry came up and said hello to them. They had never experienced anything so beautiful. The worship was phenomenal. To have a live band there and to hear the stories of the women and the pain and how they went through it. If you haven't heard it, listen to it online. And they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were moved to tears. They come afterwards to me and they were hugging me and kissing me and thanking me for bringing them to such a beautiful event. And then one of them, literally two weeks later before Christmas had to leave the country with her son and her husband. She called me January 7th on my birthday and said, I'm sorry I had to leave all of a sudden. I can't come back. I don't have a visa. Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God in my pain, showed me my purpose here. And he showed me great joy. I was dancing and praising him, and I'm rejoicing. I was rejoicing even when he showed himself to me, thinking of every song. But he is a faithful God, and he loves us so much. And now I'm teaching 13. There's 13 children in the community there as well how to paint. I teach them, and I get to share with them as well. It's amazing if we submit and just turn to him and he will wash away our pain with his love. And he will show us there is a world around us that's dying, that's dark, and they are lost. And our time may be short. It's every opportunity. Someone once said to me, whoever's in front of you, that's who you minister to. I am so honored and thankful to have this opportunity. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. What I love about her story is that she turned to God in her pain, not away from him. She faced him as she wept with hands open, pouring her heart out, waiting for God to show up, and he did. She didn't know how or when he would show up, but he did, and he always does. God will intervene in your life. 
I don't know how, I don't know when, but he will. Weeping endures for a night, David wrote, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 22 teaches us that no matter what you go through in this life, you are never alone. God is with you. Do you believe that this morning? I hope so. I know that maybe it's hard to feel it in your heart, to imagine it in your mind. And I think one of the things that can help us more than anything is to learn to lament. And so we only have a couple of minutes left, but I, there are some um, uh, half sheets of paper on your table in your basket. It contains a template uh, of a lament for you to practice turning to God in your pain. And you're going to see the first element is pain, where you, you're honest about your thoughts and your feelings um, that you express to him. There is a, a, a place for you to write your plea, what you need God for you to, you, to do for you and why. And then there is a place for you to write your praise, um, for you to, um, to give a, a statement of confidence that God will show up for you and that you will Praise him. And so in the next couple of minutes, will you just, in the quietness of your own heart, um, um, work through this? You may not be in a season of lament right now. I hope that you are not. But take the time to reflect upon when God was there for you in a time of pain. And, and maybe you spend most of your time in the praise part. Um, and so after you do that, in just a few minutes, um, I will come back and close us in prayer. Psalm 22 began with pain. It ended with praise. He has done it. Will you pray with me? Father God, dear Lord Jesus, our Savior, Holy Spirit, our Comforter, thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. We praise you, Lord, because we can turn to you in our pain. We can face you as we weep with hands open, knowing that you will answer us. You will turn our pain into praise. We declare that this morning. And we leave here, Lord, with hearts full of gratitude and hope that you have indeed heard our prayers and you will answer according to your goodness and your kindness in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's girls said, amen.